Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi, everyone. This week, we have Stacey Havner on the show. Stacey is the founder and CEO of Havner Capital, which is one of the leading independent sales and marketing agencies in financial services, specializing in helping boutiques to raise capital. In fact, they've raised over $8 billion for new discovered funds that have led to over $30 billion in following AUM. Please check out Stacey's LinkedIn page where she shares great advice for sales and marketing in the industry. To chat with Stacey, we're delighted to be joined by former guest and friend of the pod, Charlotte Thorne of CapGen, who co-hosted this episode with Schroeder's Andrew Williams. Charlotte, Andrew, and Stacey discuss the power of narrative, storytelling, and the importance of communicating well in a numbers-driven industry. They also talk about common misconceptions around narrative, what successful stories have in common, and how to consider ethics of storytelling. Finally, they also showcase how storytelling can help individuals stand out, even in a big firm. Enjoy. Stacey, I'm exceptionally excited to be here talking to you today. Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am equally as excited to be here. I've enjoyed prepping for the podcast, and that just means it's going to be even better as we do it live. Brilliant. I, I'm a huge, can I say fan? Is that the right word? I follow you on LinkedIn. I love all the content yeah. that, that you produce. Uh, thank you. Um, yes. uh, for those of our listeners that, that haven't heard of you, though, do you mind just um, yeah, t- telling us what you're all about? Sure, I'd be happy to. Backstories are my favorite thing, and I'm always happy to share mine. Um, so I'm Stacey Havener. I'm the founder of a sales and marketing agency here in Newport, Rhode Island in the States, and we help investment boutiques grow. So the system we use has helped clients raise $8 billion that has led to $30 billion in follow-on AUM. And the sort of asterisk I'll put on that is these are new, undiscovered, or startup funds. So, you know, for a large company, that's a drop in the bucket. But when you are launching something, these are very, very meaningful assets. And I'll share that none of that, none of what I just told you makes any sense on paper, right? Not for those fund companies, not for those boutiques, and and not for me. I did not set out to work on Wall Street. I'm a blue collar girl from a working class town who got the wrong degree from the wrong school. And I wanted to be a college professor. I wanted to be a literature professor. I wanted to write. I wanted to tell stories. But I also paid my way through undergrad. And I was going to have to pay my way through grad school. Um, As it turns out, my high school soccer coach had a day job. And he ran a little over a billion dollars in small cap growth equities. Um, I did not know coaches had day jobs. So this was news to me. Anyway, I, he offered me a position. He said, hey, you know, I've been running these assets. I want to launch a fund. I know you need to save money for school. Why don't you come and help me do this thing? And you can save some money and then you can go back to grad school. So that was the master plan. Um, needless to say, I never left. Because as it turns out, in an industry full of men who love numbers, there is a place for a girl who loves words. And I think for me, this is so much more than a day job because these boutiques are underdogs. And that is a mission. It's a passion for me because in so many ways, I am one too. I feel like we've had a kind of storytelling masterclass <laughs> uh, already uh, just there. One of the, before we dive into it, I was going to ask you about, I understand that you're, you're starting a podcast at the moment. You're thinking about starting yes. your own podcast. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I just recorded my first episode this week with my friend and behavioral finance expert, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I don't know if you know him. He's amazing. Yes. And so he was the first guest. And so the idea of the pod is basically to say, and we'll talk about this today as well, that there are people behind the portfolios and they matter and their stories don't get told. And so this podcast is a chance for that light to shine brightly on them. So it's it's about boutiques who've made it. It's about emerging managers who are kind of the next gen coming up. And it's also about the power of storytelling. So those are kind of the three threads, if you will. Oh, fantastic. I'm looking forward to uh, to that one being published for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, as you know, it is no it's like being ho- hosting a podcast is very different than being a guest on a podcast. I think I like being a guest better so far. So <laughs> we'll see if that changes. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because we have someone uh, who has been a guest on our podcast, but is co-hosting uh, with me today and, and Charlotte, who's uh, one of the founding uh, partners of uh, Capital Generation Partners. And actually, I think it's a really good thing to bring up now, which is something you started you know, years and years ago, which is your summer notes, which is essentially you know, narratives to, to, to kind of help you communicate your story with clients. I think yeah, it'd be a great moment for you just to talk about those in a way that's more, uh, a little more accurate with the, the description <laughs> I've just given you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's so interesting to hear you speak, Stacey, because I think what you're trying to get people to understand is a little bit what we were sort of reaching for without knowing all those years ago. So, I mean, we started our business, which is in investment management. We work with Ultra High Net Worth clients 15 years ago. So our competitors are the big, big private banks and big banks. And, and I think when you start out as a boutique, you feel, um, I mustn't talk about personality and I mustn't talk about me and character and these individual stories because I have to be big and I have to be quanty and I have to, it's, I have to talk about the analysis. And also we were all sort of somewhat those people anyway. So, you know, we're all sort of slightly geeky, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so for a long time, we, we sort of, well, for a while we fought against it. But I think um, we, we had the idea, in fact, my managing partner, who is excellent at storytelling, had the idea. Why don't we, you know, the stuff we talk about when we're offline and we're not talking about investments, why don't we just capture some of those things that we like, that we're talking about over lunch or, you know, in, by, the, by the water cooler, as it were. So, so we put together this little compendium of ideas and we had it produced and we sent it out. And I think initially we had a print run of like 200. And now it's 2,000 and that's still a small number, but we're talking to, a, a, you know, a village of 10,000 people potentially so we're reaching a lot of people in our space and it is very very idiosyncratic and it is us it's literally the things that we think are interesting and now i looking back on it and looking back on it through the lens that you've placed on it i can see why it's been helpful which is thing with investment management and potentially with all sorts of financial services is it's it's not like the film wall street you know michael douglas is not in it it's, it's, it's really, there's a lot of process, there's analysis, there's repetitive, often quite mundane and, and repeated. And you're just every day trying to achieve something very, very, very small that your clients won't feel every day. So, and sometimes it's, you know, a disappointing year. So how do you keep your clients alongside you when you're having these sort of disappointing moments or they're just like, oh, I'm just bored. I'm bored of talking to you about this. So actually, I think one of the things that we found someone notes does for us in terms of talking with our clients is just say, look, you know, if you if you like the sound of what we talk about in our, you know, in our lunchroom, maybe you'll like working with us. Maybe maybe we'll share some ideas. Maybe it's just fun and you'll keep it in your downstairs loo and look at it every now and again and. And, and have a fond thought about us. And in the meantime, yes. we're working hard on your investments. Yeah. And, yes. Uh, and so actually, it's exactly as you've said, letting out a little bit of character and personality ended up being something that isn't very often done in our industry and ended up being something quite powerful and, and distinctive. So oh I, I actually gosh. wish we'd had this conversation 15 years I, ago. 
we could spend the whole podcast talking about just that move that you made and why it works so well, but you couldn't have done a better thing, even though you might have not realized what you were leaning into without hindsight. But now you look back and say, oh, my gosh, this is doing something. And it's sort of like you don't know why, but then the results are very tangible. And that authenticity is what's missing, especially in our space. And we can talk more about that. But I think it's it behooves all of us, no matter which side of the desk we're on, so to speak, in the investment world, to realize that you know our clients are hiring a person. They are not just buying a fund or hiring, you know, or, or, or buying a plan or buying something that is a thing. There are people there and people do business with people. And that is something that's, you know, ingrained in all of us. So it was a brilliant move. I've read this latest version. I can't wait to actually hold it in the physical And I'd love to talk more about it because I think everything you said is spot on. And I am not surprised at all that it's having an impact for you. Like, bravo. I mean, just so well done. Oh, that's really kind of you to say. And actually, the physical bit of it is also really interesting. Like, it's not online. We don't do any Google optimization. It's it's just a physical book. And and that's quite interesting. That, like, brings you back to the person, the thing. We're human. We're we're animal yes. humans and we like to have objects that we could sit and hold and feel and the design yes. and the, the reality of it is quite important. And it's different and you're standing out because all the stuff that you described, all the process and, you know, it's, that's very difficult to differentiate. The perfect. Right? Well, sorry, how do you differentiate? I mean, no, feel free to jump in. I mean, it's, it's tough to di- differentiate that. And so how are you going to stand out? And in fact, the industry does, you know, a, a, a bad job, a good job of a bad job, which is don't stand out, blend in. This isn't about you. And it's wrong. Yeah. Such a perfect segue into my uh, next question. You've kind of answered it already in some respects. But, you know, if we take this back to kind of, um, you know, square one or a grade school, if I tried to, tried to speak in American, uh, American language, you know, what's, the, what's the real kind of theory behind the advice that you offer investment managers? Um, you know, and can you talk us through any kind of real success stories and what, what was it that drove those? I would say the theory is based on human behavior. And human behavior is scientific. And what the studies show, the science is that 95% of decision-making is subconscious. Now, this is not a stat that anybody in the investment industry likes, probably wants to believe, but that's a human thing. That's not an investment thing. That's not another industry thing. It's a human thing. And layer down, the biggest part of your subconscious is emotion. And the way to kind of connect emotionally is through story. And that goes back to the beginning of time. So that's the theory, I would say. But to take it specifically to the investment space, I think what happens, and Charlotte, you nailed it, is when you start a boutique, and someone says, okay, you know, what are you building? Like, who do you want to be when you grow up kind of thing? You look big, you, you look yeah, up, you say, right, I want to be them. And so then your rational mind goes, okay, well, if you want to be them, then you should use their playbook. The problem is that playbook doesn't work for you. You can't use their playbook. And yet you have all these firms, you know, BlackRock is my go-to on this. Like everybody wants to be BlackRock. I had a call with them. (laughs) We have a new client. They're in Bolivia, um, an emerging manager doing really cool things in Latin America. And I asked them this question, you know, you're building this boutique, who do you want to be? And they said, the Bolivian BlackRock. And I, you know, first I wanted to bang my head on my desk because I'm like, you clearly don't follow me on LinkedIn because that is like, you know, 
But anyway, the point being that if you try to use that playbook, it's not going to work. It doesn't play to your strengths. And the analogy I often give is David and Goliath. If David had tried to beat Goliath with Goliath's playbook, would he have won? Definitely not. Yeah. Right. Instead, he went to his specialty, which happened to be the slingshot. And he happened to be really, I won't cuss, but really good at that. And that's how he beat Goliath. And so we as boutiques need to find our slingshot. And it's not going to be BlackRock's playbook. I think it's, so that's it's very powerful theory. to hear, isn't it, for boutiques to try and encourage them to be true to their own thing that they're bringing right. to the market. Whatever that's it is right. you're bringing, it's your, it's your thing. It's your thing to build. And that touches on the authenticity of it and the people behind it, right? Because, and this will be great because it'll bring us to some stories of, of it actually working. But I think, you know, when you look at the bigs, they're generalists. That's how they got big, right? So you can't be $9 trillion without offering basically every flavor of investment under the sun for every single investor under the sun. And boutiques can't do that. So where the boutique has power is in specialization. It's in niche. It's in being a meaningful specific, not a wandering generality. And so if that's true, then you need to lean into all the things that make you different, make you complementary to some of the stuff the bigs might be, and to own that, not try to dull the edges and blend it out, to really lean into what, what separates you. I guess part of it's that, hard to do. Yeah, to your point that it's difficult to do, I guess part of that is and I imagine this, this is again in theory, if you're, you know, if you're starting that new business, if you are that founder, no matter how confident you are, you're probably worried about the appeal that you're going to have with the market and the maybe a bit of imposter syndrome, a bit of nervousness leads you to go, you know what, let's, let's try and just appeal to everyone. Yeah. But yeah. I think what I'm hearing is like, that's actually counterintuitive, you know, that will be counterproductive for you because you'll try to appeal to everyone and you'll kind of won't really appeal to anyone. 100%. And that there were, you know, there's this concept of, you know, sort of magnetism, like being magnetic. Um, and, and in art, what does a magnet do? It attracts, but it also repels. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you can't actually attract like your true fans if you are not willing to repel the people who aren't. And that is, from a human nature perspective, very scary because we want to fit in. And the, the, right? there needs to be a certain amount of confidence in your, in your positioning and, and maybe to have had some success before you, can, you feel you can afford to repel people. Yeah. <laughs> that, yes. It takes some doing, I think. It takes some doing. And it, it is. It, it's, and, you know, I often say, like, people look out here in our industry for asset growth. Like it's going to come external. It's going to come. I need all these people to, but it starts in here. Because to your point, Charlotte, you can't attract unless you are willing to stand for something. You have to have conviction around something. You know, you can't say, well, I think the market's going to go up and it's going to go down. I like value and growth. I live in passive and active. I mean, that no one, everyone's like, I, I don't know what to do with Who that. What do I do with that? Yeah. Right. And so the attracting and repelling, it, you know, that authenticity and vulnerability, that's a daily practice. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to build towards that. So to, to give you some examples, um, I would say for us, when we do capital raising, so on the sales side, there's two scenarios we really like, sort of two stories that we really like, two story arcs, archetypes. One is a breakaway. So a talented portfolio manager working at a big decides this is not my thing anymore and spins out and sets up their own boutique. That's one of our favorites. Probably our favorite. My favorite anyway. Uh, then the second one is an institutional firm decides to launch a new fund for a new channel. Okay? Because that also has a very similar storyline behind it. 
So I'll give you an example of the breakaway and then you tell me, because I don't want this to go long in the tooth. We can move on. But the, but the breakaway stories are great. So we have a client who worked for, for a large specialty boutique, but they had about 60 billion. They were sort of the considered the father of concentrated growth investing here in the US. And our client, Tom, was the, I don't know what employee number he was, but let's just say it was 10. He was there very early when they had about 200 million under management. And the founder of this company was his mentor. So here's Tom working with the founder of the company. They're building these, you know, these specialty portfolios, concentrated growth, and they're it's working and they're growing, et cetera. And the company is growing and the assets are growing. And this arc, by the way, is very common. Uh, so they start hitting these double-digit billions and things start changing. Things start changing. It's harder to deploy this capital. The alpha is starting to degrade. Now you have more portfolio managers who are at the table trying to make decisions. And the tipping point is that you know the founder um, retires. And then the dynamic and the kind of feel of the place really changes. And so Tom says, look, I miss what it was. I miss what it was. I miss how we served our clients then. I miss how our process worked then. And I'm going to go set up my own thing. So he does. He partners with us. And um, he's doing amazing. He's doing amazing. I'll tell you this from a success standpoint. This is still early days. I want to say he's got a couple hundred million under management now. But one of the things that that really speaks to the power of the story is that when he came to us, he ran separate accounts. And we said, look, we have a lot of RIA and family office investors who are early adopters. And if they want to access your strategy in a different format, a fund of some kind, are you open to doing that? He said, yes. So... We had investors for no economics who said, I will give you 20 million, 30 million, whatever the number is, to stand up a mutual fund for us because we want that. So he did. He was break even instantly. He did not have to share revenue with them. They wanted access to him in a different vehicle, and we made it happen. And that speaks to the power of early adopters. And boutiques, right? Because they, when Tom told the story, and this took some time to be able to tell the story with respect to his former employer, because he holds them in such high regard. How do you tell that story of why you left without, you know, saying something bad about them? And so that's kind of a very typical success scenario for a breakaway. And the story is everything there. I actually really recognize that story. So it's really nice to hear from another angle. I really recognize that story. Thinking a bit about how it is for a client to receive some of this storytelling. I think yeah. there's, there's early adopters and I can see that they are by nature, you've probably got a taxonomy about this, but by nature they're open and they may be curious and they may be too curious yes. and they're open to all sorts of things <laughs> and maybe some of it's nonsense, but they're open. And yeah. one of the things about, and this is specific to us, but our client base is ultra high net worth clients yes. who are sold to all the time mm -hmm. and they hate it. They hate of it. They do. And they just want to close everything down. And I, mm -hmm. obviously, I'm not ultra high net worth, but, <laughs> but I have had the experience recently of going to a conference and just, you know, saying a few words at a conference, and then you're bombarded with sales stuff afterwards. Oh. And it's, it's just so oppressive and overwhelming. And actually, there's all this admin to do after a conference, not on the content, but on getting rid of the sales <laughs> stuff that comes to your, <laughs> to your email. So I just wonder, how do you, well, how do you yeah. encourage boutiques to tell their stories to people who are really sick of being sold to and mm -hmm. and how how do you help them understand what those clients are really looking for because of course they still need investment solutions so how do you yeah. help them get over that hurdle so it's such a great question and it's so true and here's the thing no one wants to be sold i mean that just stinks like no one that's a horrible vibe to feel 
it's also a horrible vibe to deliver. Like if yeah. I come in and I'm pitching you, I don't, I don't want to do that, nor does the person receiving that pitch want to receive it, right? So part of it is a complete and utter mindset shift that right. says, kind of goes back to attract and repel. I'm just going to tell you who I am and what I'm about. And, you know, we can go through all the different stories. And if that is something that you vibe with, great, we should keep talking. And if you're like, yuck, this isn't for me, no harm, no foul. The second best answer is no. And so if you're not, so I often say, like, if you go into a meeting, so where are you aiming with your narrative? Where are you aiming? If you're pitching, are you aiming here, which is mostly what investment people do? Are you aiming here, which is where the decision actually happens? Or worse, the the worst, are you aiming at their wallet? (laughs) And that is, again, that's sort of a construct that needs to be broken because the pitch is what everyone talks about. And yet that is the, the worst for both sides. So I think what we do is say, you know, if I wanted to, like, let's say I had Tom and, and I'm talking to an investor and we know a lot of our investors really well, as you know, your clients. And so when I'm talking to the investor or even right when I meet Tom, I'll say to myself, oh my gosh, he would be best friends with so-and-so at this firm. Like they would totally vibe. Now I might be wrong, but my gut is wow, they are going to totally hit it off. And so when I would suggest that they meet, I don't say, well, Tom is launching a you know concentrated growth strategy and, and right now it's separate accounts. And do you want to hear about it? That's not it. It's more, here is who he is. And his story is really cool. And he's a great person. And so are you. And I just think you guys would hit it off. Do you want to have a cup of coffee? That is different. And so I think if your clients felt that they were more just meeting interesting people doing cool stuff, they wouldn't feel so sold to. And quite frankly, it'd be more fun for those of us on the other side of the table as well, because you're just having a conversation. Yeah, those conversations that lead to that lead to engagement, that lead to ongoing relationship are are the best conversations that you have. And that's, that's the ideal, isn't it? And it's how do we find ways to unlock those without, without hammering people over the head with sales material and and pitches. Yeah. Pitches. It's broken. I see that. (laughs) It's so broken. Right. And it's what everybody does. So, especially for a boutique, you know, I I had another, uh, uh, actually another uh, firm in London that called and said, we need help with our story. And they, they shared their, their situation. They said, we, we get always get invited to finals and we always lose. And I thought, oh, this is awful. This is like, you know, always, oh, always a, a bridesmaid, never a bride. And so I asked a lot of questions. I said, well, this is a kind of a silly question, but how often do people smile? <laughs> no, I started, I, I actually asked this one even worse. You're probably laughing because they're, this is a, a London based firm. How often That's do people not. laugh? How often do people laugh in the meeting? They were like, wow, oh my gosh, never. <laughs> they never laugh. I said, okay, how about how often do they smile? And they're like, they don't smile. I'm like, okay. So there's like, there's just no personality happening here. And I've thought about this conversation a lot. And I thought about it so much. I said, you know, that's not where it, the pitch isn't where the deal is won. The decision is already made. Come on, let's be honest. You're there because you're a great second, right? Yeah. And that's not where the deal is won. The deal is won everywhere before you ever walked into the pitch. And so they're practicing their pitch for 15 hours and they're doing all this stuff. And I'm like, that's a waste of time because you lost it before you ever got invited to the darn thing. It's how you're showing up on a regular basis. So it's true. Pitches are horrible. You mentioned then a London firm. And I wanted to ask you anyway, how much difference you think there might be between 
an American approach to to telling a story or having a story told to you and maybe mm. a, a British approach. I feel like we might be a bit more hesitant. Yes. Do you think that's fair? I think you I think you're probably right. I mean, <laughs> you are probably you two are the experts on this versus me. It's interesting. I said to my husband, I'm like, you know, I don't get it. The the British are really vibing with me lately. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> so, but um I think you know, I guess what I would say is, of course, there are cultural nuances that need to be considered. And and certainly so if you were to be, you know, like trying to raise money in Asia or something. I mean, there are cultural nuances that I don't even, I'm not even aware of. And those have to be considered. But I think at the core, we are all humans. And that is what I lean on more than anything. People want to do business with people they know, like, and trust. And all things being equal, that's who's going to win. And so if you don't smile and you just seem like a total snore and I would never want to hang out with you outside of this pitch, I'm not going to choose you. I don't care how good you are because it's going to be marginally better than the other people who are here. So true. Isn't it? It's so, so true. true. You've got my mind going into overdrive about how many times people laugh at my pictures. And then the second order thing is, are they laughing with me or at me? Well, that's true. But it would be okay. It would be okay if they laughed at you. And I feel like I am totally hijacking this podcast because you probably have questions. And I, every time you say something makes me think of something. So I'm going to button it for a second um, and let you drive. No, look, it's, it's great. It's great to kind of uh, see yeah. where it goes. It's, it's super interesting. But actually, something you said, um, initially we were talking about the two different types of story. You said there is the um, either the, the person who's been very successful at a big firm who's left, um, setting up yeah. their own thing, or the large institution that is creating a new product or a line and a new channel, I, I think you said. And that yeah. makes me think a lot, obviously. I, I work at Schroeder's, which is a, a big organization, but I work for a small and quite specialized team mm -hmm. you know, within that big organization. So when you're doing the, the work on the, on the second story, I guess, yeah. how do you advise individual and quite distinctive teams to stand out when they are operating within a big? And can they develop their stories to almost flipping the, the first narrative on its head to genuinely compete with the boutiques? So it's a great question. And... I did some homework and kind of looked at where you're stacked in the ranking of, of um, asset managers globally. So the last print I had was your number 36. You probably know all of this. 988 billion, give or take, as of 331. So 36. So you're definitely a big, um, you know, BlackRock being number one, of course. So you're in an interesting spot because you're not the biggest but you've like definitely surpassed boutique. And so now I think if I put myself in your shoes, I would say some of it has to be sort of corporate culture. So some bigs are company first, party line. This is, we, we do this. We, we think this, our economists tell us this is what we're thinking. And this is what, what we are all thinking now. Okay. Everybody get on board. It's hard to differentiate in an organization that is very top down, right? And those types of firms that have that culture are going to be more suppressive of individual personality because let's talk about it. I mean, why, you know, you see a lot more team portfolio management in big companies like that because they don't want an individual to have too much personal brand power. You know, take TCW and Gunlock. Gunlock leaves. TCW's having a complete heart attack, you know, trying to stop this madness because they know he's going to take assets. And so a big company, we have to put ourselves in their shoes and, and try to understand, like, what's the vibe? What's the culture? What's going on there? Now, if it's the other type of culture at a big, which is we are very supportive of we're a collection of boutiques. Each of our teams has their own, you know, sort of viewpoints and specialties, and we support those boutiques um, as, you know, kind of little um, entities within our overall structure. If that's the vibe, 
then I think you can take some of the pages out of the boutique playbook. Because if it's a new fund, I got news for you. You're doing everything the boutique's doing. You have more resources behind you. But if it's a new fund, you need early adopter investors to, to, to get on board. And that doesn't mean call the big consulting firms and pitch them your brand new fund with no track record. They're not interested in that. So you are going to have to shift. And that's why we like those stories, because they do require a similar story arc um, as just a startup you know, boutique in and of itself, because it's a startup fund. You are on a different place on the adoption curve than other funds. And so you have to take some pages from that playbook. So are there there quite a lot of similarities then with the advice you give to those clients and the bigs and the the boutiques? Yeah, because now you're telling a story. So, So you have some advantages there, which are resources, right? So you have resources, but you also have the disadvantages. You need the freedom to be able to tell the story the way that it's going to resonate with an early adopter. And an early adopter is sort of predisposed to want to connect with the person. So what the boutiques have as an advantage, typically, is they are employee-owned. It's founder, portfolio manager-led. Those types of things you're not going to be able to compete with. But you have, so you have to kind of do a hybrid. You have to say, well, we're a boutique within a very large organization. We have the best of both worlds. We have the resources uh, and and we have the the sort of permission and the empowerment to be a boutique within that structure. And here's who we are as people. Here's why this strategy matters to us. Here's why we get up every morning and do this, not just because we want a paycheck. It has to mean more than that. So you have to do all the same things that the boutique does, but just for your team people can't see because it's a podcast but i'm kind of smiling like a <laughs> cheshire cat because uh, that's exactly what we try to do on the value team at Schroders. we are that you know we're 15 billion of that 900 billion pool and you know we're always talking about the uh you know trying to act as a boutique within that wider organization so yeah it's your uh, podcast is a great example well exactly yeah. it's exactly. a perfect example <laughs> Right. I mean, you have the resources to have this great studio and it's so well produced. And so you've got like the advantages of a big. But here it is. I mean, I was listening to some podcasts of yours in prep for this. And I mean, you're talking about it's not party line stuff. You're interviewing people who have opinions and they and, you know, you've got your disclaimer at the beginning about. It's their opinion, not ours, but like you've got the freedom. So I would just keep leaning into that. It, it is really distinctive, I think. And that's that that makes to to use your terminology, it makes a big firm feel like a series of boutiques with with all the power of that also. And yeah. I was gonna ask you, Stacey, so so you've you've spoken about being a, a boutique within a big firm and you've spoken about being a boutique and you've spoken about being a spin-off. Are there misconceptions about storytelling and how to make that work that are shared across all the clients that you work with? I mean, they come to us and they we say, okay, we're going to work on storytelling. And they go, oh gosh, what did I just sign up for? Like that kind of a Yeah, I mean, do you find there's a, like a common, yeah. a common set of hesitations <laughs> and concerns yes. and neuroses that, that people, people have? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. The last word there is perfect. So here's the challenge. I mean, there are a lot of challenges, um, but here's here are some of the common ones. I think, again, because typically for us, we are working with the portfolio manager, often the founder. And we all know what the psychographic is of a portfolio manager, right? Are they happy to go do sales and marketing? Not really. <laughs> Like, are they happy to even step out from behind their Bloomberg? Not really. Okay. So this is like, this is a huge ask. Okay. And, and so to, so what happens is like the first time we do storytelling with them, they are so uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, like sometimes visibly uncomfortable (laughs) because we're asking them to do something they've never been asked. 
they've been they've spent their entire career being told that no one cares. And by the way, this is not their language. They are far more comfortable speaking in numbers and data and statistics than they are in words. And so where they want to go when whenever you get nervous, you go you go to your comfort zone. And so you probably recognize this pattern, but when you're in a meeting with a portfolio manager, they instantly, you'll be like, okay, you know, tell your story. And, and if they're nervous, they're going to be like, start the story. And then, and that makes me think of my portfolio. Like you're <laughs> like, wow, whoa, how did that? No, back up. They want to go to their comfort zone and that's the market, their portfolio, maybe performance, some stats, some data. They really are not comfortable talking about themselves, their team, um, their values. So usually when it starts, we get a lot of, uh, you know, I prefer to do those calls with the portfolio manager without anybody else there. Because sometimes if there's an audience, it's even harder for them. So they have to practice just telling it to me. And if I really feel that we're we're struggling and it happens often, one of the things that's been a big unlock is I will just ask them about their mentor. Tell me a story about your mentor. And it brings them from here to here. From your head and to your once, heart, I'm, I'm adding there. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's right. You can't see me. Sorry. From your head to your heart. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, and once you get them kind of functioning in the heart part, then they're able to talk a little bit more freely. So I think it's not that they don't. So what I don't hear from them is stories aren't going to work. If they said that, yeah. I'd be like, we are not the, the group for you. Yeah. We are not the group for you. I'm sure there's somebody else who likes to fling fact sheets around and throw throw funds at a wall and see what sticks. It's not us. So that's our repel. If you don't believe in it, we're not we're not your people. So by nature of the fact that you're on our roster, we you you believe it enough and are open enough to try, but that doesn't mean it's easy. It's really interesting. Yeah. So you've made a business out of out of telling stories and, and raising a lot of money for a lot of people mm-hmm. out of telling mm-hmm. stories. And those stories, you know, they're intentionally designed to, to persuade people to part with their money. And I kind of want to switch gears a little bit here and dive potentially into maybe the darker side of storytelling sure. or the other side of the coin. And the, the genesis of our podcast actually is it's about decision making in uncertain environments. And we've We've had, uh, you know, quite an eclectic mix of, uh, of guests uh, on, on the podcast. Someone we had recently was um, Bethany McLean, who's the journalist who kind of broke the original story that, that essentially led to the unraveling of Enron. That mm-hmm. you know that, that, that was a fraud. And I actually watched a there was an amazing uh, was an amazing Netflix documentary out at the moment on the on the Wirecard scandal as well. Mm-hmm. Which if you haven't seen it, I recommend you know, look it up on Netflix. Go and watch that as well. But um, there was a, a parallel between both of those where the, there was people, be, you know, very different, different cases, but people believed in the stories that the companies were, were, were telling. And it made me think about kind of the ethics of storytelling a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind mm-hmm. of hopefully I'd get your thoughts on that, unpack the ethics a bit, and then also ask you, you know, are there any sort of telltale signs from your experience to, to kind of spot a phony, to spot the person that's just trying to spin you a yarn and, and get you to part mm-hmm. with your money and, and, and in, you know, is, uh, is inauthentic, I guess. Such a great question. And I love that you have the courage to ask it because <laughs> it's true. So it's not all rainbows and unicorns over here in storytelling land, right? <laughs> so I listened to that podcast and it was wonderful. She was amazing. And I I found myself nodding at a lot of things that she said. I think there... So, so let's just start up here for a second. I think there's a perception that only... Okay. I'll just... I won't say it that way. I will say often people will say to me, you must have crappy managers because you are focused on telling stories. If you had good managers, then you wouldn't need to do storytelling. 
And my question is, so do you think that good managers don't have a story? Because they do. Every person has a story. And so the there is kind of a knock that storytelling is lipstick on a pig sort of thing. And it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Everybody has a story and every every person's story is worth being told, right? So that's the first thing. Um, now, going down the sort of the angle of, okay, but there certainly are some bad actors or bad apples in the barrel that have good storytelling. And that's certainly true. From an ethical perspective, I mean, bad actors and bad bad people are going to do bad things. Like that's just part of it. I think where storytelling gets knocked is because the decision-making happens 95% subconsciously, and we know that the emotions are a big part of that, then people say, well, if we weren't telling so many stories, that wouldn't happen. But, but that's the science. That's going to happen no matter what. That is how decisions are made. So a story doesn't have to be made up. Like if I tell a backstory of a portfolio manager where they worked, that's data. Those are facts. I didn't make it up that Tom worked at this company. Like he freaking worked there. Those are facts. So the problem is when the narrative has no basis. Sure. The data, so you so the way that in my mind, how I sort of envision the the party of storytelling and decision making happening is, you know, the heart says, whoa, this is like really hitting for me. I, I am vibing on this. I am going to pass the baton to my friend over here, the mind. And the mind is going to tell me if if I was right or if I'm totally off base. If that part doesn't happen, the baton toss, now you got a problem. Because the heart liked it, made the decision, see you later. The mind has to have a role. And the role is to make sure that we're good, right? I need the data to test and make sure that this is a sound decision. And so that's it's both of them. It's just that the data is after. It's really interesting because it, I mean, do you feel that people in our industry, believe it's the other way around 100 percent. brain makes the decision first and the the heart right. comes in with a that's rubber stamp. why they aim here and it doesn't work kaya the chartered alternative investment analyst association did a study on institutional allocators and it was fascinating because they asked the allocators and the managers the same question and the question was how important is qualitative versus quantitative in your decision-making, okay? The allocators say qualitative is as important as quantitative, if not more. The asset managers say, Those, the allocators, they are all quant. <laughs> That's the problem. You have two sides who are not even in the same neighborhood in a, from a communication perspective, right? The other thing on the, the Bethany McLean podcast that was really interesting to me is as I listened to her talk about different scenarios, certainly Enron, but then I think she was talking about even Tesla a little bit. She kind of talked about some things. The red flag for me there is when someone doesn't want to answer a question to the level of sort of like, I'm angry you even asked. That's weird. Why would you be angry at someone for asking you a question? The other red flag for me is if someone asks you a question about your failures or mistakes and you can't answer it or refuse. There's a lot going on there that I might not want any part of. That reminds right? me of that, that interview question where people say, what are your weaknesses? And, and you're supposed to say, well, I'm just so much of a perfectionist or yeah. <laughs> I yeah. find it really hard to stop working. Or, yeah, I can't say no. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that but, but, sort of like, thing. Does anyone believe that? Yeah, yeah. yeah no. no. So it's kind of like we all, we know it when we see it. Um, we we know the sort of like, this is, this is inauthentic, this is phony. Yep. And so the exploration and the deep diving and the fact 
checking that she talked about in that podcast is critical. But that Absolutely. part of the due diligence process happens usually after the heart has already been like, this one is good, right? And so that's kind of how I think about it. I choose to believe that most people are good people by nature, but I also understand that storytelling is so powerful that someone could use it for, for ill, yeah. you know, as well. That's really interesting. The way I'm kind of thinking about that now is, you know, you, the, the, as you said, the facts are the facts. The person came from this firm. These are their numbers. But if you had, you know, person A and person B and the facts are identical and one had a great story and one didn't have a story, like we know which one would be more successful. And I guess the other skill, as you say, is, yeah, you can fact check the facts, but it's weaving those facts into the narrative at the appropriate yeah. moment to, yeah. to drive the decision making. Because as you say, you know, should narratives drive decisions? What was one of our questions? I think it's actually a silly question because they do. That would be my response. Yeah. I don't know if they should or shouldn't, yeah. but that's what happens. Exactly. So we have to we have to all recognize that that is happening, whether we like it or not. But I think you nailed it. You nailed it with that comment. You really did. It's Take actually, that one. It's actually <laughs> quite liberating to think of about it that way. We can actually stop having this argument about fact versus fiction and, and narrative people versus math yeah. people. It just, it's the narrative. You have to have the math right, but that's the way the decision-making goes. I, that's okay. actually really liberating. <laughs> yeah, and it should be because I think, you know, what it says is it's your choice whether you want to tell your story or not. That's your decision. And some people don't want to. You know, some people want the website that literally says nothing. Like I'm a hedge fund and look at me. I'm so exclusive that all I have is like a picture of New York City and my address. And that's fine. If that works for you and that's your vibe, there's a certain group of people that will vibe with that. But the rest of us like that, you know, you, you can choose to in. tell it yeah. or not, but you, you have one. It's there for you. So we're also big fans of uh, Robert Cialdini on, on this podcast. We all are, and, and his work and his, uh, his books on influence and things. Um, and something that made me think is very specific to our role as a value team uh, within Schroeder's about when we're, um, when we're telling stories to engage clients. So the way I often think about this is, is value in lots of ways is kind of using bad headlines to make great investments. Um, mm. and, and there's often... But to us, that sounds really, really alluring. But to clients, that can sound pretty scary. We're often, we're often sure. saying things about uh, negative things happening in the market or in, on, on specific stocks. These are companies that are going through hard times and the headlines are awful and the earnings are going through the floor. But trust us, <laughs> in a few years, we'll see through that and there's a great opportunity. And that is what makes the value premium. It's that uh, overshooting of euphoria and optimism on the upside and too much pessimism on the downside and we need to be unemotional and see through that and yet to appeal to you i'm trying to appeal to your emotions so yeah. how do you yeah how do you kind of square that circle when you're framing something which is you're trying to sell something which is counterintuitive and unemotional mm -hmm. and yet appeal to people's emotions when they're making decisions it's a great question and i love cialdini's work so Framing definitely kind of going back to the previous question, framing has a, a bad, that's a negative connotation around framing, right? Like you're framing this, it's like spin. And so, so before we dive into this, let's step back a second. Let's put ourselves into the, into the shoes of the person receiving this story that you're going to tell. Okay. So what are they, what are they afraid of? If you tell that story you just described, like, you know, bad headlines create good opportunities. What are they feeling when they hear this, this story? Can't be you. You have to be them. So maybe Charlotte, this is a good one for you. Because what would your clients hear if, if we're talking about bad headline? What are they worried about? Uh, they're worried about protecting themselves. They're worried about staying safe. Um, yeah. They, they're worried about fallout in yeah. the rest of the market. Right. They're worried. Human behavior. People are more concerned with losing money than they are with generating gains. Yeah, loss right? aversion right there. Loss yeah. aversion. Yeah. yeah. So when you lead with, here's a company that's just had a massive loss, 
what triggers for the person receiving that? I don't like loss. Yeah. So <laughs> this is this is a this is a horrible convo for me, right? So we have to know. So that exercise of sort of really trying to get to the root of how is the person receiving this going to feel. So so if we want to tell a good story, we have to address that because just saying it is probably going to help. So when you tell that story. Um, there's two ways you can do it. It's a little bit of what we call a job story. So basically what you're going to, you're going to, you're going to explain like, so we're value investors and, and this is kind of the role we play in your portfolio. You have a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, is, is, you know, well, not a whole bunch, but you have some, some exposure to things that are um, trending, they're growing, there's growth. And then you want to balance that out with, value, right? So I don't know how I don't know how sophisticated this person is we're talking to. But even if they are sophisticated, you want to get to the root of you need things that do you need zigging and zagging. Okay. We can't just all be zigging or we're going to have big problems. And certainly you have a backdrop for value that is very interesting. I mean it's been kicked in the teeth for 10 more more than 10 years and is starting to come back. So maybe it's more of starting with like the comeback kid, underdog kind of story, like everyone's hated value for so long, high math, mean reversion, like that can't go on forever. There's tons of charts that could help you tell that story. And more specifically, when you're talking about companies, I think the way to bring it to life is with what we call an impact story. So you explain it, you show them and you acknowledge I know this is hard to hear because as humans, we are biased to be afraid of loss, but let me tell you why that creates an opportunity, right? So you address it, you explain it, and then you show it to them with another story that we call an impact story. So that would be an example, right? So you explain it and then you say, you pick a, a portfolio company and you, you show the story. We bought it here. It did this. Here's what we saw. Here's what we liked. And then it did this and it was amazing. And we sold it here, right? So that they can see it from end to end, as opposed to you asking them to believe you when you're only at the beginning. Sure, sure. That's fantastic. That's really fantastic. Okay. And I even got okay, an amazing, I even got an amazing soundbite out of that, which is when the market zigs, we zag. Which, which yeah, is, uh, <laughs> that's what you want. And and I know, like, I think what happens too is like so many people in this industry are very very smart, and so they think there's that like complexity bias too, right? I feel like I'm doing yeah. like a CFA crash course right now or something <laughs> that basically says like we're predisposed to think that if something's complicated, it's better. Yeah. And as intelligent people, we think too, like, I can't, it can't be this simple. It can't be this, sim this simple explanation that's going to hit home. I got to go to the most esoteric, give me all the Greek stats. Let me just talk about convexity or some stuff that no one's going to understand. Like that type of <laughs> jargon makes it worse. If you talked to the, if you gave an example or for a second, just did the like, how would I explain this to a fifth grader? And then go as intellectual and esoteric and deep as the person wants to go, you're probably going to get the root of, of what this person is feeling. Yeah, certainly, certainly. It's fascinating. I could talk about all of this for hours, but unfortunately, you know, we are we are nearing the end, and we will let you go very soon. But uh, before we do, um, we ask all of our guests two uh, signature questions. Um, in fact, the first of which I'll I'll, I'll ask uh, I'll ask Charlotte Charlotte to ask you. Yeah. So, Stacey, which are the books that have really guided you and inspired you? And I'm thinking both of your of your work that you do now, but also you spoke at the beginning of, you know, how you were headed towards literature. So I'm wondering which books mm. back then Ooh. were the ones that led you there. So I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, which you can't see. You might be able to see it. There, <laughs> yeah, see it. Um, okay. So I love, I love, I love Cialdini, but we've already talked about him. So first I'll do one that's more about theory. I would say, so Seth Godin who's definitely more in the tech space. I, I learn a lot by reading about 
how tech and SaaS companies build. And, and Seth Godin is the one who does the meaningful specific versus wandering generality. So, so for me, when I read his things, even though he's not necessarily speaking to us in this industry, I find I pick up a lot. So I'll give that one as kind of a new, fresh uh, perspective. Writing that down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything that yeah. he does. I'm and, a huge um, Seth Godin fan for sure. Right. So. Yeah. And, and in fact, he has a very old, um, I guess it's like a podcast called Startup School. Uh, I love that series of recordings. It's basically like a live recording of him running a course for startups and it's brilliant. Okay, so Seth Godin. And then I would say on the literature side, gosh, you know, I I think I have not read Joseph Campbell, um, which is um, The Hero's Journey. But if I had, I'd probably say that because yeah. I, I think the story yeah. arc is is so amazing. I can't, I would say, you know, gosh, I'm looking at everything on my shelves. And nothing is jumping to mind. I think for me, I'm going to have to send you an email, Charlotte, after this. But <laughs> but one of the places that I find a lot of inspiration is in poetry. And the reason I say that, um, in fact, if you look at my LinkedIn, I because I wrote poetry in school, um, I tend to write my LinkedIn posts with, with meaningful line breaks. Right. right. Um, the rhythm. Poetry. Yeah. Yes. Poetry forces you to use less words. Yeah. And to really think about, I mean, there's so much marketing talk that says, and I just said it like simple is better, but I also think that the exercise of thinking through meaning um, and the words that you choose is important um, to storytelling and uh, in any way, whether it's a backstory or a um, a job story. Like, how are you going to explain this? And the little sound bites that you said, Andrew, that's part of it. Yeah, because they hit right, like a rap song. The lyric yeah. hits, and you're like, ah, that that's was it. so good, right? So those little sound bites, the things that pack a big punch. I take that from poetry and I feel that 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 resonates and and I think it's a a good practice for all of us. What a great leap from value investing to poetry. To rap music. <laughs> to rap music. Which is awesome. Which is poetry. It's poetry. Yeah. There's a pretty famous uh, artist in the UK called George the Poet who's yeah, like, he transcends both yes. that uh, rap and poetry. Yeah, so I'm um, yeah, I'm yeah, that, that's really cool. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, so my final signature question uh, is, are you able to give us an example? And this is harking back to decision making and, 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 and the kind of uh, the crucible of, of why we started the podcast, really. But we often on our team, we often think about people often think in terms of the outcomes of their decisions. But often mm-hmm. outcomes can actually be a pretty lousy teacher quite often. Mm-hmm. And you should actually think about the process. Um, led you to making that decision uh, more than just you know thinking oh i had a bad outcome i'll never do that again or i had a great outcome yeah i'll definitely do that again mm-hmm. um so could, do you have any examples in this can be professionally personally of mm. where you've had a poor outcome but it was genuinely due to a poor process rather than just bad luck mm. oh my gosh hi like uh, daily <laughs> um I think it's, it's, we, you know, if we're doing it right, my soccer coach, so I guess we're ending where we began. um, My soccer coach would say to us, if you're not falling down on the practice field, you're not trying hard enough. And I think part of that, you know, you want to have a process that's, that's systematized, that's repeatable, that's scalable, but you also don't want to get complacent right? You want to keep pushing yourself because things change and and you want to make sure like, is this still it? Is there anything I need to add? You know, I have a process of how to uncover someone's backstory and it has everything to do with the person I was sharing with you. Like I want, you know, to do the same. This just happened the other day. So I went in with this, you know, this is how I do it and I'm doing it and it's bombing. I mean, and this doesn't happen to me. Like, you know, it's one of those, yeah. like, what? I don't, I, I, this isn't working. What is happening here? 
I'm starting to get frustrated with Lion and I'm like, it's not them. I can't find the story. And luckily, I mean, it wasn't even me. I, I was almost just like, I need five because I don't know. I got I to gotta figure this out. But luckily, there was more than one person in the meeting. And they raised their hand and said, can I tell you a story I think you'd like? I was like, this is great. Well, they went from the portfolio manager, which is who I was focused on, to the family. So this is the Bolivia story again. Right. The family that was that owned this large holding company. It's like one of the wealthiest families in Latin America. And he told me their story. And I was like, there it is. Yeah. That was totally my bad that I didn't really understand where the magic of the story was. It still was with people. I had just been focused on what typically for me is the portfolio manager. And here it was the people behind the portfolio manager. So the portfolio manager is behind the portfolio, but there were even, you know, there was people behind him and that was where the magic was. And so I can't even say that I recognized my own mistake there. I got saved by the client. Um, but my goodness, from a red flag checklist perspective, I was like, write down, like, if it's not working with the, with the person, try to go a level up. Normally I keep going, you know, level right. down. Yeah. It was an incredible learning for me. That's fantastic. I think it's one of the most insightful. I actually love, you know, we've, we've, as you said, we've ended where we've started, which is uh, a perfect kind of narrative as well. Yes. Um, yes. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic uh, to have you on the podcast today. Like, I've had an incredible time. Yeah. Um, so and, yeah just thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, gosh. Well, same. The feeling is mutual. I have enjoyed every minute. I feel like I have so many questions for you, um, you know, about summer notes. And just I, I was very much like I said, the prep for this was so much fun. So if I'm in, Lo in London, I'm going to call and, and we're going to have a cup of coffee and we can talk more. It was, it was awesome. Thank you for having me. Oh, please do. That'd be amazing. We would love that.